0: Welcome to this week's episode of Until Green Card Do Us Part, a weekly show where we address the issues that immigration-based marriages made a few feet short of heaven create for American citizens and their families. I'm your host, John Sampson, CEO of CSI Consulting. This show is brought to you by CSI Consulting, a technical legal consulting firm that assists American citizens and their attorneys dealing with immigration marriage fraud and other visa fraud issues since 2009. In this week's episode, we will begin to look at the Violence Against Women Act, or VAWA, as it is commonly called, and how it impacts immigration and how, in some cases, it is used to obtain an immigration benefit by fabricating false allegations of domestic violence made by a non-citizen against their American spouse. In 1994, then U.S. Senator Joe Biden introduced at the behest of women's rights activists and immigrant rights activists the Violence Against Women Act, which dramatically changed the way domestic violence cases were handled by police and the courts in this country. This bill had bipartisan support in Congress. Almost unanimous support, I might add, because after all, no one wanted to be tarred by the brush of conducting a war on women. The problem with this legislation was that it upended the constitutional protections criminal defendants were supposed to have, and were guaranteed to have, under the Bill of Rights. It was, as a result of this passage of this bill, now possible for a person to go into court, make allegations against a domestic partner, albeit under oath, in what is called an ex parte proceeding, which is a proceeding where only one of the two parties is present, the other one is not, and that one party could get a court order, oftentimes ordering the accused to vacate their home, and further place restrictions upon him or her. Both the 5th and 14th Amendments to the Constitution of the United States prohibits anyone from being deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Yet here we are. The accused doesn't even know this proceeding is going on, much less given an opportunity to confront the witnesses before him nor are they afforded any semblance of a presumption of innocence until 14 to 30 days or more, now due to COVID, when a hearing on the merits is conducted. Meanwhile, the accused is forced to move out of their home, cease all contact with their accuser, even if there are children involved, thereby making communication with the other parent impossible in order for the accused to see their children. All it takes is one person to run into court, and based on their statements alone, a court issues an order against the accused, curtailing his or her freedom, his or her ability to reside in their own home, and as a result of that order, infringe on the accused's rights to keep and bear arms. Thank you, Senator Joe Lottenberg of New Jersey. Allow me to illustrate this a bit differently. Prior to 1994, in the state of New York, the state could not bring a charge of rape against a man solely on the uncorroborated testimony of the alleged victim. Now, it's a completely different world. The uncorroborated testimony of the victim is enough to see a man charged with rape. I had a client early on in my private practice who lived in New York City was a librarian at a prestigious college and who married a woman from the Dominican Republic after she came here as his non-citizen fiance. Once the woman got her green card, intimacy in that relationship ended, causing the American citizen to wonder if he had been played. As a result, he confronted his Dominican wife and politely told her that if she was not going to, quote, be a wife, to him, which included being intimate with him, he would have no other alternative but to believe she married him solely for the green card, and he would report that to USCIS. So the wife goes to the NYPD and told them that her husband said if she didn't have sex with him, he'd have her deported. NYPD promptly arrested him And we'll call him David, and charged him with rape in the third degree by forcible compulsion, which is a Class D felony in the state of New York. After David bonded out, he went home, called his mother using the speed dial function on his phone. Unfortunately, the phone call went to his wife's phone's voicemail instead of his mother's number. Believing he misdialed, he simply hung up, and called again using the speed dial function. And again, the call went to the wife's phone voicemail, and he finally realized what his wife had done, unfortunately, too late. What she had done was she had reprogrammed all of his speed dial entries to dial her phone. Why? So she could have evidence he violated the criminal protection order the court had issued that she could use that information to bail out of the marriage and remove the conditions on her conditional permanent residence long before the two-plus years had elapsed that the law required for them to remain married. Predictably, NYPD arrested David again, charged him with the violation of the protection order, put him back in jail, he bonds out, and then we go to trial. Now, David did go to trial, and based partly on my expert witness testimony and partly on the total lack of any evidence corroborating the allegations made against him, David was found not guilty, but not before he lost his job, his apartment, which was rent control, and his reputation, not to mention the cost in financial ruin for having to defend on a totally bogus rape charge. In 2005, Congress passed and Bush signed into law the International Marriage Broker Regulatory Act, or IMBRA for short. Part of that law requires both USCIS and the State Department to provide non-citizen fiancés and or spouses of U.S. citizens with their rights and protections under the Violence Against Women Act provisions of the immigration law. That means David's wife, who entered as his fiance, knew all about VAWA before she got on a plane and left Santo Domingo. And unfortunately, this woman was allowed to remain in the United States because USCIS believed she was a victim. Now, given that this has been the law since 2005, going on its 16th year now, and that every non-citizen fiancé and spouse of a U.S. citizen is advised about VAWA before their visa is issued, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that if they're involved in a marriage fraud, the easiest way out of this whole thing, is, while they make sure they get their green card and not lose it, is to allege domestic violence. Now, Francis McKinnis. A left-leaning author and journalist wrote an article that appeared in Slate entitled A Husband Spurned Are a Small Number of Immigrant Wives Faking Domestic Abuse to Stay in the United States? She wrote, The Violence Against Women Act has been a lifeline for countless abused women. The act first passed in 1994 and due to be reauthorized again next year, which was 2012, contains a host of programs, including stiffer penalties for batterers, funding for women's shelters, and the creation of a national domestic violence hotline. But the law has a potential flaw, too. A small fraction of the time, it may also provide incentive for immigrant husbands and wives to fake domestic abuse. Hundreds of American men say their foreign wives exploited a section of VAWA that helps victims of spousal abuse to remain in the United States even if they exit their marriage. The spurned husbands say their immigrant spouses have lied to the police, lied to judges, lied to women's shelters in their efforts to manufacture evidence of abuse. David Brannon, a 46-year-old project manager at a telecommunications firm in McLean, Virginia, says he met a Russian woman named Elena Neroda through an online dating service in 2005. After several months of emails and phone calls, Brannon traveled to her hometown of Rostov-on-Don to propose. Soon after, Elena moved to the United States on a fiancé visa, and the couple were married in a civil ceremony. At the time, I was really sure of myself, really sure of her, Brandon says. I really felt I had met my soulmate. Brandon says he was sent reeling when in April of 2007, Elena filed for a temporary restraining order alleging that he had threatened her and pushed her. The restraining order was dismissed due to insufficient evidence eight days later, but the ordeal still cost Brannon thousands of dollars in legal fees. Brannon says he was a victim of a provision in VAWA that allows battered immigrant women and men to receive green cards and other benefits. He believes Elena never loved him at all, and that she had planned to accuse him of domestic violence and abuse from the first moment they made contact online. McKinnis further writes, Elena did not respond to my numerous emails. In court documents, however, she called Brandon a psychotic idiot and crazy and said that he repeatedly told her he would kill her. Her complaint for divorce alleged that Brandon engaged in excessively vicious conduct, which included verbal abuse and striking her with objects of furniture and cooking pans. Charles Castle, Elena's lawyer, did not return several phone calls, yet one of his staff members told me he would not comment because Elena's case is now closed. It's tempting to dismiss Brandon's version of the story, Men in his position have a vested interest in declaring themselves innocent of the bu- ab- abuse accusations, after all. Some of them found their younger, more attractive spouses on dating sites that are essentially mail-order bride catalogs. And I talked to a few men who were zealously anti-feminist, McKinnis writes. One told me that feminazis have colluded with the U.S. government to turn men into second-class citizens. Some women's rights activists dismissed the idea of VAWA fraud. It isn't something that we hear about or see, said Samira Hafiz, a senior staff attorney at Legal Momentum, the nation's oldest women's legal defense fund. But the intimations of fraud aren't just coming from angry ex-husbands and a few wives. Immigration agents, lawyers, and the brokers who facilitate marriages between Americans and foreigners say that VAWA is sometimes exploited. No one knows how widespread the fraud might be, though it's probably a small portion of the spouses who apply for immigration relief saying that they've been abused, McKinnis opines. In 2009, 8,534 people tried to gain permanent residence through VAWA's abuse provision, and 73% were successful. Government databases don't track how many of the 2,000 or so denials were turned down on suspicions of fraud, as opposed to another reason, such as lack of evidence. The opportunity for fraud may be a small harm that's necessary to prevent more serious wrongdoing, according to McKinnis. Before the act was passed, only an American spouse could file an application for a marriage visa. This meant that an abusive husband or wife could threaten to withhold immigration sponsorship as a tool of control. VAWA tried to change that by allowing abused spouses, parents or children of American citizens or permanent resident aliens to self-petition. That is to file for permanent residency themselves. There are clear benefits to self-petitioning. Once approved, the applicant gets to bypass an otherwise mandatory two plus year conditional period. If any deportation proceedings have been started, they are halted. Successful petitioners are also eligible for benefits such as food stamps, subsidized housing, and Medicaid. For immigrant women caught in a prison of domestic violence, these benefits are the lifelines that make it possible to start over. Still, does the government's handling of the petitions make it too easy to fake abuse? McKinnis interviewed me for this article, and she writes John Sampson, a former investigator for immigration and customs enforcement, thinks so. Petitions are regularly approved based on allegations of abuse rather than hard evidence, he says. Although the official benchmark is clear and convincing evidence, Sampson says immigration authorities make no effort to validate documents submitted by a wife claiming abuse, do not interview her, and discount evidence from the American husband that contradicts the abuse claim. It's a paper chase, he says, of the lack of follow-up. Chris Radigan, a spokeswoman for USCIS, counters by saying that 50 trained agents at a central processing center in St. Albans, Vermont, examine each VAWA abuse case carefully. The center takes about six months to approve or deny a self-petition. I have to inject something here. It doesn't take six months for an adjudicator to adjudicate an application. That six-month period is the backlog that they have on the applications. It takes an adjudicator less than a day to adjudicate this stuff. So, that statement made by Radigan, in my humble opinion, for what it's worth, is less than candid. Radigan continues we consider any credible evidence, which might be affidavits from police, judges, court, school officials, social service agencies, and clergy. Agents also look for orders of protection and photographs of injuries and for evidence that the applicant went to a women's shelter or met with a psychologist or counselor. Radigan confirmed that the Vermont Service Center does not interview either spouse. The relatively lenient standard of proof is in place for good reason, McKinnis states. Several decades of research show that the dynamics of domestic abuse make it difficult for women to report and document the crimes against them. A wife may be financially reliant on her husband, or she may come from a culture that discourages involving outsiders in family matters. Making it more difficult for battered immigrant women to get help would clearly be a step in the wrong direction. I'm quite okay with what I believe to be the minuscule number of fraud cases that might slip through an otherwise good working system, Elizabeth Newman, a law professor at the City University of New York, wrote in an August 2009 email to a group of domestic abuse advocates reviewing the VAWA immigration provision. Newman has a point. Interviewing applicants and investigating the evidence they provide would be expensive. It may not be cost-effective to weed out the likely very small number of bogus claims. Still, some immigration and women's rights activists agree that measures should be in place to guard against immigrants looking to exploit the law's permissiveness. Credibility must be established, says Lenny Marin a senior vice president at the Family Violence Prevention Fund, a nonprofit focused on ending domestic violence and sexual violence. By no means do we endorse fraud, she said, adding that both the lawyer representing the case and immigration authorities should make sure that any claims of abuse are legitimate. Even so, if a wholesale overhaul of the law is a bad idea, we still shouldn't pretend that women never falsely report domestic violence or that it's a victimless crime. People who are wrongly accused can face high legal fees like Brandon's, a ruined reputation, and even jail time. Also, women who fake abuse tie up resources intended for the women who really need them. Real victims could lose their spots in shelters to fakers or miss out on legal aid. That's the opposite side of the spirit of VAWA. In short, McInnes and the others she names in her article proclaim that the incidence of fraud is, quote, minuscule. Uh, My question is, how do you know what the rate of fraud is since USCIS admittedly does not keep records of the number of fraud cases they find? And are they suggesting that the fraud is committed is the price we have to pay for keeping women safe? I would venture that David Brannon and my client David and the others who have been falsely accused of domestic violence or worse would beg to differ. If neither the immigrant or the American citizen spouse is ever interviewed and this is all done by paper filings, filings restricted by the law to only the immigrant spouse alleging the abuse, mind you, and the burden of proof is the lowest burden established, that being any credible evidence, and not the clear and convincing burden all other immigration filings have, then can someone please tell me how immigration authorities and attorneys to make sure any allegations of abuse are legitimate? The simple answer to that question is they can't. So the pro-immigrant rights activists and women's rights activists push to downplay the number of fraud cases by using terms such as minuscule, small, insignificant, very small, to describe their estimates of the level of fraud being perpetrated. They have no hard numbers. They have no hard facts. This is just an opinion that they're offering. And the objective of that opinion is to downplay the amount of fraud as much as possible in an effort to prevent any meaningful overhaul of the law. That's why they're opposed to interviews and actual objective investigations. When an alleged immigrant victim of domestic violence submits a temporary restraining order, as, quote, evidence of the abuse, unquote. USCIS never requests to see the outcome of the case or the final disposition of the case when a hearing is held whereby the accused can mount a defense. They rely solely on a temporary protection order as the necessary, quote, credible evidence, unquote, despite the fact that the accused has not even been made aware of the issuance of this order until he is served, much less given an opportunity to defend against the allegations made. And to make things matters and matters worse, the Violence Against Women Act provisions of the Immigration and Nationality Act specifically and expressly prohibits USCIS, ICE, CBP, and or the immigration court from considering any adverse information provided to them by the alleged abuse of American citizen spouse, and or their families. In essence, this means a U.S. government agency can have a file that states John Doe is an abusive spouse and Mr. Doe is prohibited from even knowing that that information even exists, much less given an opportunity to contest it. The law not only prohibits USCIS, ICE, CBP, and or the immigration court from considering any adverse information provided by the alleged American citizen spouse and or their families. It also prohibits USCIS, ICE, CVP, and or the immigration court from releasing any information about a VAWA claim being filed to anyone other than law enforcement or the courts. So much for the presumption of innocence, due process, and equal protection. It simply doesn't exist in an immigration VAWA context. The axiom many women's rights activists and immigrant rights activists live by is all immigrant women are abused without exception, all American men are abusers without exception, and no immigrant women lie without exception. And if you believe that, I have a bridge I'd love to sell you cheap. Now, next week, we will continue discussing the Violence Against Women Act and how it impacts immigration-based marriages. We will be looking at a Government Accountability Office report that, quite frankly, gives USCIS poor marks for combating fraud in the Violence Against Women Act programs in USCIS. If you believe you are the victim of immigration marriage fraud or are facing fabricated allegations of domestic violence or worse, made by a foreign-born spouse or intimate partner, contact CSI Consulting at 719-368-2626. That's 719-368-2626. Or you can email CSI Consulting at CSI Investigations, with an S at the end, at neteason.com. That's N-E-T-E-C-I-N dot net. We can help you and your attorney defend against all of this. Until next week, I'm your host, John Sampson. Thanks for listening.